Thank you for making it. We're, we're basically halfway done with your year of build. And uh, it just it, I, I love the stuff we're going to be covering this semester um, as we transition through the rest of the disciplines together. Um, today we're going to, in a little bit here, pick up on uh, Discipline 3 again, on Paul and his gospel ministry out of um, 1 Thessalonians. Um, but uh, before we do that, what I want to do is uh, let you know about Shepherd's Conference first, if possible. Um, and we always try to make, um, I think if you look at your schedule in March, there's only one build because we try to say, uh, if, if possible, if you can make, we, we want Shepherd's Conference to kind of count as the other build that month. Um, and we'd just love to have you guys come if you can. It's, uh, it, it's, it's not um, free by any means. Um, it, it's it's got a little bit of a cost to it, but I just want to let you know up front that if if that's a, an issue for you, um, please let the elders know because I mean we wouldn't want that to be a reason the, the main reason why you weren't able to go. Um, we can work out um, all kinds of arrangements with you if it's helpful to you to to give you some time to be able to pay back some of that. You can um, if it's if you're just in a kind of a situation where you, you may not be able to just cover all of it. You know, regardless of how much time you're given, then, um, you know, just let us know that too. But we would love to talk with you about that, okay? So let me give you some of the details on it. There's a hundred different variations on this of what you could do. But the main thing you need to do first if you're going to go is the conference itself is $300. It's, um, the conference goes from Wednesday the 7th of March through Friday the 9th. If you go on the website, it actually says that it's through the 11th, through that Sunday. They want everybody to stay and go to church on Sunday out of grace. Um, for those of you who don't know, Shepherd's Conference is, is at John MacArthur's church. And um, let's see if I can remember all the speakers. And Jacob, can you do me a favor? If you've got internet, stupid question. Um, can you tell me what the cost of that flight 193 is? Or do you remember? Oh, 49? Oh, my goodness. Okay, the return flight home on Friday night is 81. You'll miss the last session. session. Okay. Another one Saturday, Okay, so man, you can almost, you know, then you have to start weighing your time. Uh, time is money, right? <laughs> but um, anyway, so the, the conference is uh, at John MacArthur's church at Grace Community Church in, in um, L.A., uh, John will be speaking, Phil Johnson will be speaking, Tom Pennington, Steve Lawsonback, Bodie Bachman, and seems like there's another one, but that might be it. Anyway, um, it, the conference is, is all about shepherding, all about church leadership, about what the church is about, um, trends that the church needs to be careful of out there. Um, there's main sessions where those guys preach and teach, and then there are breakout sessions. We've got a couple spots over here too, guys. Come on in. Um, there's a, there's all kinds of breakout sessions. They're going to give you back. You're going to spend $300 to go to the conference. When you get there and register, they're going to give you $50 back in the form of a gift card that you can use to buy books in the store or whatever you want. Um, you're going to be given also a huge bag 
of books. That's probably over $100 worth of in just books. Okay. Easily, yeah. So, I mean, if you... Say what? Much more. Yeah, much more. Hundreds of dollars. Yeah, it could be by the time you add them all up. Um, so you're going to have a year's worth of reading that they're just going to give to you uh, in and of itself. So uh, you get a lot back. They're very generous t- to you. Um, in terms of meals, um, it's very possible that you will spend very little on meals, uh, maybe just on your traveling out, because it, it typically works that uh, they have like a continental breakfast every morning there. You just wait in line with everybody and you get some enough to eat to get started. There's food there all day long and drink all day long. They provide lunch for you in that 300 on the campus during the day, and then at night you're responsible for dinner, but we usually try to go together, and um, I don't know, I can't remember the last time I or any of you paid for one of those, unless you didn't go with everybody and you wanted to go do your own thing, which you can do if you want. But um, so on your meals, you're not going to have a whole lot to spend. You'll have to help out with gas a little bit if you're riding with somebody. I'll offer to help them out with that. Um, here's the deal. Um, Cass sent you an email on it, I think, all you guys. Uh, some of it, uh, I don't know if you want to read it again, but um, some of the guys drive out on Tuesday. It doesn't start until Wednesday, but some of the guys drive out on Tuesday. I, I prefer that personally myself because uh, if the, the conference starts around 10 a.m. on Wednesday, and we used to, and, and many of the guys still do leave like at 5 on Wednesday, and that's 4 a.m. their time, and you can get there by the time it starts, especially if you're in Mark Cronwald's car. Um, <laughs> you can get there. Um, so, uh, but if you drive out Tuesday, then obviously you've got an extra night of hotel that you've got to think about. Um, so many of the guys go home on Friday night. Uh, they just leave right after the last session, or, or they skip the last session, and they just drive home. Um, or you can stay and drive back on Saturday morning with the rest of the crew. Um, you can choose to fly out and drive back. There are so many people available and so many seats available that you can, um, will we'll help you with that, uh, coordinate your ride and stuff like that. Um, what you need to do first on your own, if you want to go, is you need to go to shepherdsconference.org and you just need to register yourself. That's what you do. If you need help financially in that, let me know, or Tom know, or any one of the elders know, and we'll um, talk with Cass, and we'll work on getting you registered. And uh, if, and then if you don't want to help us out by paying back over time, you can do that. Um, once you do that, once you've registered, you then need to let Cassidy know um, when you're going. Are you going to go out on Tuesday? Are you coming in out on Wednesday? Are you going to stay all the way through Saturday? Are you going to go back on Friday night? Um, whatever it is. And tell her if you're going to drive or if you're going to fly, because all the guys who fly, and then those of us who go out on Tuesday, we'll pick you up Wednesday morning at 8 at the airport, because it's just 20 minutes away from where we stay. Um, we'll pick you up, and we can get you back and forth. You don't have to rent a car unless you want one, but you don't have to rent a car, because we'll have plenty of uh, vehicles to get back and forth from the hotel to the conference. And so you just let Cass know how you're going to get there. Um, are you going to drive or fly? If you want to drive your vehicle or if you want to carpool with somebody, you let her know that. And you let her know which nights you're going to stay. And if you want to stay uh, in your own room, if you want to share a room with somebody else, or if you want to go forward to a room. It's 125 a night for the hotel um, at the Beverly Garland, which is where we've been staying the last few years. It's just south. It's in um, uh, south of the church, like about five minutes. Um, 
if you stay four per room, it breaks down to about 31, 25 a night. Okay? You have all kinds of other issues you got to deal with for that price if you stay four. <laughs> but you, I'm just trying to help you save money here. So if you drive out Wednesday and you go home Friday night, you're only paying for two nights, Wednesday night and Thursday night, and you can that's your cheapest route to go. If you go out Tuesday night and you're going to drive back on Saturday morning, you're going to stay four nights, and so you can figure that all out. Okay. Um, what else? One of the best things about it, I mean, you're going to, I think you're going to really enjoy what the conference itself has to offer. But um, my favorite part of it is um, just being able to be together with all the guys together. It's, it's been really encouraging uh, to be with you. You're, I don't know, you're probably going to get three or four elders who will be there as well, and we'll just eat dinner together every night. And you get great time in the car going out and back, talking and hanging out. Um, so you'll meet a lot of great people from other places. The conference is packed. I think they usually have about 3,000 guys there. Um, good food. I can't think of what what I don't like about it other than the lack of sleep part that just happens. Snoring. I don't like snoring. And you know what? The people stay with me don't like snoring either. So, anyway. Yeah, Steve. trying to work out the arrangements so that all of us snorers get to sleep together. That's right. That, you know, kind of noise kind of yeah. If you don't, if you don't <coughs> it correctly, it will. It'll, it'll cancel out. Yeah, Cassidy will be working to uh, do all of this to, to coordinate all of the, you know, uh, where who do you want to stay with and and who you're going to drive with and all that kind of stuff. Okay. All right. Any questions on that, or anybody else uh, want to add anything to that from years past? Okay, there you have it. Also, in your handout today, if you want to just go ahead and take off the very front two pages of your handout, um, it's entitled Women in the Bible. I wanted you to have a copy of this because you could stick this in your section of the notebook on Discipline 2 on the home. I would go ahead and just put that one probably in there. Remember, we went through Titus 2, 3 to 5, verses 3 to 5. Uh, if, you, if, if we're supposed to be shepherding our homes, then we need to know what the gospel, what the implications of the gospel are on the women in our homes. And uh, the ladies in Wellspring uh, went through and, and put this together. I think Sarah Demrest primarily did it. Um, and I looked it over and I thought it was so good. I wanted you to have it as a resource also. Another way that for you to just be looking at what does the Bible have to say about women in the Old Testament? Um, what is the, I forget her main categories, women's in the New Testament, but she just has um, kind of the, these really helpful headlines uh, on, in, in each of those different categories. And, um, you know, you can really come up with some good study on those. So make sure you just put that probably in Discipline 2 in your notebook. All right. Let's, um, let's review back through your disciplines on the back of your notebook this morning real quick. These are things that hopefully will become just kind of ingrained in you in, in your sleep. You'll, this is what you'll talk about in your sleep in the middle of the night. And I just want to encourage you how 
practical these things are in regards to your fellowship in this body and, and, and beyond the body. But if you are, let's say you're going to get together with, and you're going to have some coffee or you're going to have lunch with somebody in the body. What do you want to, how do you want to minister to them? How do you want to care them, for them? How do you want to serve them? Well, what would be better to talk about than tell me how your heart is with God? Tell me about your time in the Word. Let's talk about what we're learning about God in His Word together. Let's, let's dialogue about that. Talk about that a little bit. Now tell me, what impact is that making on your home life? How is that impacting your marriage? How is that impacting your, your time with your roommates? Um, what does that look like with your, with your parenting? Great. Now talk to me about um, what's going on in the church. What's your, where are you serving in the body? And how is the gospel, how are you working to keep the gospel central to your ministry? See, what this does, it's not just for you personally to think about, but this is, this is the grid by which we care for one another. And so what we're trying to do in the body with BUILD is to say to all the men, everybody over here, and let's unify around these things. Let's unite our lives around these leadership disciplines, not just for ourselves personally, but I will commit to helping you do it also, and you will please commit to helping me to do it. This is what the men of this church do and, and, and achieve together. Um, I was able to have lunch this week with a, a pastor from another church, and, and their church is probably about twice our size, and we were talking about um, leadership development and what we're doing, and, and um, so I was talking to him about that, and he said, um, uh, he said, well, how many guys do you have in your, uh, in your bill? And I said, I think there's like 50 guys on the list, and he just couldn't believe it. 50 guys? 50 guys wanted this? I said, you know, it, this is all of God's grace, but it, if a guy doesn't do this at grace, he's probably going to feel it, that he didn't do it. Because this is what we want. This is God is making us, helping us to become a part of the, just the culture of our spiritual culture of our church, that we want the men to be men who shepherd their hearts, who shepherd their homes, who, who care for each other well in the body with the gospel. And we want that because that's what God wants. I mean, what, else, what else is there for a man to focus on than these things? Um, and everything flows out of number one. Everything flows out of number one. That if you fill your heart up with the word of God and the God of the word, you have something to contribute in regards to God's gospel work in people around you. And it can't miss your home. You, men love to play leapfrog over their homes. It's just, if you wake up and do nothing with yourself to direct yourself, to shepherd yourself, you will leapfrog over your family. That's what men do. That's what our fallen nature does. We jump over those obligations and over those relationships to get to other things that we seem, that seem to us to be more important. But they're not. And therefore, we stretch ourselves out thin, we hollow ourselves out, and all it takes is at some point in the church something to come up that pops it, and everything crumbles around us, and we take a bunch of people down with us. Um, and that, that just can't happen. It can't happen to you, and it can't happen to this church. So um, we want to just be intentional about shepherding your heart, shepherding your home, and stepping into one another's lives with the gospel. The, the fourth, fifth, and sixth disciplines are about, um, the fourth one is about the qualifications, the deacon qualifications in particular. 
Um, right after we finish this one, I think um, if you look at your schedule, I think we go into deacon qualifications for two meetings, um, the end of this month in, in February, and we'll walk through those. And I'll tell you what, you might think, well, that doesn't. What, looking at a list of, of character qualifications, I, two of my favorite lessons that we do here in Build are those two on deacons, because um, <clears throat> how many of you feel like you have confusion about what a deacon is? I mean, you've been to how many? Well, let me ask you this way: If you've been to more than one church, did all of the churches have the same view about deacons? No. Every church you go to, there's a different view of what the de- what the deacons are, who they are, what they should be, how they function, whether they even have them at all. Um, and that is an absolute travesty. God's word is not fuzzy on what a deacon is, and um, and what the role is, and what, and what part do they play in their relationship with elders in the church. And so we're going to look at Acts six, which really unfolds um, the prototype deacons for the church um, in Jerusalem that came to be, I think, what Paul's writing about in First Timothy three. Um, so we're going to really dig into that next, and then. Discipline five is is on the hermeneutic. We'll save that more towards the end of the of the year, um, where we're going to talk about how to use our Bibles. What we've been talking about on Sundays and in Acts has been huge on that. We work from left to right in our Bibles. We start with the Old Testament. We go forward. We don't rewrite new ideas into the Old Testament from the New Testament. Um, you don't import everything from Pentecost that happened there back into Joel. You let Joel speak, and then you let Peter speak, and then you do your best to figure out what's going on between those two. And it's not easy. Okay. Um, so we're going to talk about more about hermeneutics, and then lastly we'll talk about the vision of the church. We'll finish up our year with one big combined um, time together uh, with the ladies in Wellspring. We'll probably meet in the music room right down over here. We might be in um, Barnes Hall. I can't remember. But uh, anyway, that's one of my favorite ones as well, just to be all together. It would be 80 of us or so. That would be fun. All right, so there you have it. There is your review this morning. Keep those things in front of you. Keep pressing on them. And um, what I want to do this morning is I want to I change things up a little bit. I want to I go ahead and um, do our lesson first, and then we'll save some time at the end. Um, we've got enough to get through here that I want to make sure that we are able to do that. But before we do that, let's pray. Let's ask God to meet with us this morning and help us as we look at his word especially, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're here this morning, and we um, may not be very alert yet. You may need to do some more waking up, and I pray, God, that you would help us to do it. Lord, I pray that you would direct our minds, that you would sharpen them to be ready and alert for your word, Father, as we draw near to you. And Father, that is why we are opening your Bible, as we want to um, see what you have revealed about yourself, what you have revealed about the gospel, what you have revealed about us and who we are as gospel servants, your sent ones. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would help us to see Paul clearly in 1 Thessalonians and what his life and his ministry was like. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us how we as um, disciples of Jesus must reflect what he is in the appropriate ways that we can and should. I pray, God, that you would take these men and take my life 
and help us um, to be centered on the gospel in our ministry to one another first in the body and also beyond this body as we take the gospel out into the world where we live. Pray, God, that you would fortify these men, that you would give them boldness and courage with the gospel. I pray, God, that you would help them to remember that their primary audience in life and in ministry and especially in the mission of the gospel, the primary audience is you. Help them to to put man in the right place. Help them to not fear man more than they fear you. Pray that you'd give them courage to open their mouths and speak, even if there might be... um, shame or mocking that comes their way, embarrassment. Lord, I pray that you would dissolve it in light of who you are. And Father, the only way that happens is if we gain a clearer and greater view of who you are in all of your glory, um, that if we would be more focused on you and more aware of your greatness and your awesomeness, your, your power, your might, your your, your compassion for sinners, if we were completely distracted by that, we would not fear man and our mouths would open freely and we would speak with all boldness. And so God, we see already how discipline one is related to discipline three. We need to be men who are have shepherded our hearts to come to you and your word so frequently, so intentionally. We need to have done that well so that we are filled up to all the fullness that you are so that when we are standing before man, we will not miss the opportunity and the joy of speaking for you. So God, please work in us. We need your help. We forget this so easily. We we set our eyes um, on the things of this world and we get such small things in view. And what men think of us, um, it just grows so large in our minds and we develop fear in sharing the gospel. We become content with little things. So Father, please be powerful in our lives. Give us the fullness of your spirit so that we are bold witnesses for Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles, open them up to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. And feel free to get up and get down whenever you need to. We might take a break about halfway through. Um, But uh, feel free to just make yourself at home. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 in 1 Thessalonians of chapter 2. Remember, we went through, um, you know what, I'm actually going to back up. I'm going to read from chapter 1 into chapter 2 because it will remind us about what we talked about in chapter 1. Verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. But it came also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Remember what we talked about, those three prepositional phrases. It came in power, it came in the Holy Spirit, and it came with full conviction. actually describes Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. 
you also became imitators of us, verse 6, and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. There was a chain reaction, right? They began to imitate Paul, and then next thing they know, as a young, fledgling church, now the the other believers in Macedonia and Achaia are seeing them as an example to follow. Verse 8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. And that is a shocking statement for the Apostle Paul to make, that he has no need to say anything. When was the last time Paul didn't have something to say? But the report about them had gone forth so completely, so clearly, that Paul couldn't add anything to it. That's how powerful their witness was, their expression was, their obedience, their testimony. Verse 9, there was a report that was circling around. They themselves, those Macedonians and Achaeans, they themselves report about us, Paul says. They're reporting (coughs) about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And I think that's the wrath at the day of the Lord. Um, He rescues us from that wrath. Now, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but pleasing God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly... And uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. All right, that's what we want to look at this morning. And what I want to do in, our, uh, in this handout that you have is, is just make observations from the text. Um, and I'm going to break it down into six gospel-centered truths for ministry. And it, it, as I was looking back through this, I'm, I'm really going to rewrite this one for next year because it's so, I think it's confusing. It's confusing for me. It's going to be, and if it's, and they say, um, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pews. So if it's confusing or it's not clear in terms of the outline for me, always, it's, I, I'm really sorry, guys. 
but we're going to do the best we can. I have six gospel-centered truths. Let's look at the six ones first, so you'll kind of, kind of have to turn through your pages here. But here are six gospel-centered truths, and then we'll unpack them one at a time. Number one on the first page, ministry must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. Okay, There's no, no other message to give than the gospel. We'll look at that in verses 1 and 2, so you can fill in that blank. Then, look for the second gospel-centered truth. Number two, in a gospel-centered ministry, God is the primary audience and influence. Audience and influence. So, as you are carrying forth a gospel-centered ministry to others, you're going to need to remember this truth, that God is your primary audience and He is the primary influence for the ministry that you're doing. Third gospel-centered. Yes. Number two, you find that these are Roman numerals, right? Number two, again, in a gospel-centered ministry, God is the primary audience and influence. Now look for Roman numeral three. A gospel-centered ministry is characterized by a motherly gentleness. A motherly gentleness. This one will test your manhood in the gospel. But Paul said it, so I trust it. Number four, Roman numeral four, a gospel-centered ministry will be satisfied with nothing less than deep affection for people. Deep affection for people. Very necessary for us to really focus on that. Number five, Roman numeral five, a gospel-centered ministry keeps the path to the gospel clear. The path to the gospel clear. Don't want any hindrance to be in the way. And the last one, number six. A gospel-centered ministry's primary goal is transformation of life that is worthy of God. Transformation of life. That's your blank. Transformation of life. And that is a transformation of life that is worthy of God. All right. Now let's go back to the beginning and let's unpack these. Because each one of them is basically a, a, a message in and of themselves. Number one, ministry must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. What I want to do is give you three fundamentals of a gospel-engaging ministry, okay? Um, The first one there, and you've got a couple of blanks to fill in. Gospel ministry is never, and here's your blanks, is never hollow or found wanting. Verse one, gospel ministry is never hollow or found wanting. You see this in verse 1. Paul says, You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. And that's where we get the idea is from the word vain. Vain means hollow. It means empty. It means found wanting in purpose. Found wanting in earnestness. It's empty. Uh, So Paul is saying their time together was actually marked by not that, but the opposite of that. Paul thought of his time with them as, as a, time, a time that was marked by fullness, not emptiness. Now why? What makes Paul conclude that his time with them mattered and, and was filled up? It was because, and only because, the gospel was at the center of everything with them. It's at the center of everything. So a question I have for you is, what would happen to your ministry if the gospel is not central in your relationships? And watch this, guys. Just take some time on your own and evaluate some relationships you have. 
We all have them. There are some relationships with people that we have where the gospel just isn't right in the middle of it. We can, we can admit that probably. There's, you all have something like that. That relationship is more hollow than the others because relationships that are focused on the gospel have fullness to them. That's just the way God designed life to be. And so the first fundamental is gospel ministry is never hollow. It is never found wanting. Paul at most had three months with these guys, maybe only three weeks, but more than likely three months. And he is saying in only knowing somebody for three months, spending that much time with them, it was a time marked by fullness. And it's not because Paul knew all of their hobbies and what movies they liked to watch and what games were their favorite games and what sport team was their favorite. He didn't watch games with them. See, life wasn't focused on those things. He only was with them for three months and he said it was fullness. It's because of the gospel. Second fundamental of a gospel-engaging ministry. Gospel ministry requires boldness. There's your blank. Boldness when surrounded by opposition. That's verses 2 and 3. Gospel ministry requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. Um, and this is where you're going to get introduced to um, Paul's sandwiches that he makes or bookends or whatever you want to call them. Um, let's see. Lots of times what Paul will do is he'll give a... Um, so basically make like a sandwich. So there'll be two pieces of bread and they'll be similar in point or in theme or in subject. And then in the middle will be the thing that he's talking about. Now look in verses 2 and 3 here. He says in verse 2, we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. And this should actually just be verse 2. We're not going to be looking at verse 3 on this one. And then look how verse 2 ends. Amid much opposition. So here's what you would could put for the sandwich. You um, put um, like we had already been um, mistreated, suffered, whatever they're suffering in the first one, um, and then down the bottom he says of the verse amid. Much opposition, right? So he's focusing on persecution. There's lots of suffering going on. What's in between that? Now, before you answer, if you were surrounded by mistreatment and suffering and you had much opposition in your life, what would you be like? Honestly. (laughs) Timid. Paranoid. Lauren asks, what does Paul say? What does he say? What's in the middle of verse 2? Boldness in our God to speak, right? Is that what it says? To speak the gospel. Wow. I want to be like Paul. I'm not like Paul enough. Okay. This is the story of Paul's gospel missionary career. Wherever he went, he preached the gospel and they beat the living daylights out of him. And he only was more bold in the gospel. It's amazing. Um, 
if you look back, you can trace this back through uh, at this time where Thessalonians sits in Acts, from Acts 16, verse 19, all the way through chapter 17, verse 10. You know, he was in Philippi first, that's what he says. Um, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, you remember that, they, they dragged him away. They, the, the, the city magistrate took his rods out that he carries with him wherever he goes. We'll talk about this when we get there in Acts. And he just kind of carried, he was just like the, the disciplinarian in the city. And he just took out the rod and just started beating Paul with him. Didn't even have a trial for him. Didn't even realize that he was a Roman citizen and assumed that he wasn't. Threw him in jail, remember, in Philippi. Earthquake happens. A Philippian jailer gets saved and with his family. Paul then goes to Thessalonica. So he's recovering from his wounds in Philippi. And he is bold with the gospel. A couple questions. How much trouble exists in your relationships because of the gospel? This is where we, as American Christians, and are where we're at. I don't, I don't know if it's because, I'm pretty sure it's not because our culture is so friendly to Christianity. It might probably be more so due to we're just maybe we're just timid. Maybe we're maybe we've been maybe we've believed that what really matters is that we just live out the gospel. We don't have to really say it. But evaluate your lives. Why is why, where and, and, and why is there trouble in your relationships because of the gospel? If there's trouble in your relationships because you know if there's trouble in my relationships because I'm a jerk, that's not what we're after. But if there's trouble in my relationships because of the gospel, uh, that's all right. What might be some reasons for the absence of trouble in our relationships? Maybe, maybe we're just not extending the gospel. Maybe, maybe our lives aren't close enough to the lost so that they can actually see a clash of kingdoms. You've got a king reigning in your heart, and they've got the devil reigning in their heart. You put those two together, boy, there's liable to be some sparks. Right? Maybe we're just not close enough for a clash of kingdoms to even be seen. Or another reason why maybe there might not be um, some trouble in our relationships is the gospel's not central. Now, now, don't get me wrong. The gospel might be a satellite, like the moon that comes around every once in a while. And so there might be some periodic clash of something. But when the gospel is the center, I mean, we're, it's always there wherever you are. Well, then there's bound to be more trouble. So then what happens when opposition comes in your gospel ministry to someone? What happens when, what do you do when somebody just totally and completely rejects you, and maybe even mocks you, maybe even slanders you behind your back? What do you do? Is it time to move on? And Paul's bold. He's bold. Does boldness come to the surface at a time like that? Third fundamental Gospel ministry finds its boldness in God alone. There's your blank for that one. Gospel ministry finds its boldness in God alone. That's right in the heart of verse 2. We have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. We have boldness in God to speak the gospel of God. Boldness here literally means all speech. It's a, it's a very interesting word. I love this word. It just means all speech. It... it, it um, reveals the state of mind that somebody has where the words just flow freely. 
it's just like when you when you get into a moment of in a conversation where it's like you don't even have to think about what you're going to say. It's just coming out and it's just going and it's just going and, and there's a freedom. There's there's a there's there's no restraints on you. There's no constraints on you. So it's the idea of boldness, but it's the idea of confidence that you just know what to say. You you have something to say. And this word in the New Testament is always connected to the proclamation of the gospel. This word is not used in talking about other things of life. This is a word that Paul uses mostly when he's talking about preaching the gospel. With all boldness, he preached. So despite the trouble that's around him, Paul still felt quite easy and open about speaking. It's like they hit him and the gospel just kept coming out of his mouth every time they hit him. And he says we have the boldness in our God. That means his boldness was not in his own abilities. It wasn't in his personality. It wasn't in his upbringing. It was in his God, this boldness. That's where it came from. This is, um, this is where it is so important for us to see where discipline one connects with discipline three. If you shepherd your heart to see the God of the word, you are in God in that sense of drawing near to him, to see him, to be, to see your connection to him in Christ. Then from that flows just a freedom to speak, a boldness, a confidence to speak from that. So if you wonder why maybe you don't have the boldness or the freedom to speak, the first place to go to fix that is to not learn a technique or to get a little track that you can hand out to somebody. It might be helpful. I'm not bashing on tracks. But that doesn't address the root. The place to begin is fill your heart up with who God is in Scripture and watch what happens. You won't be able to shut up. You will speak with all freeness and boldness You'll be a, a broken faucet that just won't, nobody will be, you turn it and he just won't shut up. That's where you begin, is fill your heart up with God. Get that boldness in our God to speak freely, confidently. Live with a greater awareness of who God is in Christ and Scripture. And if you become more aware of that than you are of all of the opposition around you, you'll be like Paul. You'll take the beatings and be willing to keep talking. All right, so there's your first gospel-centered truth from ministry. Number one, ministry must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. Number two, Roman numeral two. In a gospel-centered ministry, God is the primary audience and influence. This will be in verses three to six. Now, what we're going to do here is we're going to walk through verses three to six twice. The first time we're going to walk through looking at how God is the primary audience, and then we're going to look through it um, the second time through to see how God is the primary influence on the gospel ministry. So I want to give you first four proofs that God is the primary audience in ministry. Okay, four proofs. Here's the first proof, that God is the origin of our message and our mission. There's your first blanks to fill in. God is the origin of our message and mission. Verse 3. Uh, even at the end of verse 2, as this picks up into that, it's the gospel of what? Of God. And our exhortation comes from that. Okay, so it, it originates from God in that sense. Drop down to verse 6. 
the message obviously then comes from God, the gospel of God. Now look at verse 6. Paul says, we are apostles of what? Of Christ. Of Christ. So the mission then as a sent one, that's what apostle means, a sent one, doesn't come from Paul, it originates from Christ. So the message comes from God, and the mission comes from Christ. Do you see this? It's not the gospel of Paul, it's the gospel of God, and it's not the... (coughs) He's not a sent one of, of his own doing. He's a sent one of Christ. So the message originates from God. The mission originates from God in Christ. Does that make sense? That's just kind of the bookends of verses three, uh, verses 3 and 6. Now notice where he says in verse 3, it does not come from our exhortation, which is from that gospel of our God. It does not come from where? Error or impurity or by way of deceit. Now, why would he pick those three things? This, this gives you some insight into what's going on in the setting. Somebody has come to them with an exhortation, and it's full of error, and it's full of impurity, and it's deceitful. And Paul is saying, I ain't like those guys. This is why Paul is writing this letter. There have been some who have come, and they are, they are uh, attacking Paul's ministry and his character and, and what he did. And Paul is saying, our exhortation doesn't originate from where theirs originates from. Right, so the origin of our message and our mission comes from God. That's a proof that he's the audience. He's the one who's watching and in control. Secondly, the second proof, God tests us to entrust us with his gospel. That's, that's like a life statement that you should just know. God tests us to entrust us. Here's what we do at testing oftentimes. We, we kind of subtly get this attitude of we test to reveal weakness. We test to make people feel their weakness. Um, you can get that sense sometimes. But God is different. He tests to entrust. Verse 4. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Do you see it right there? Now that word approved... Um, what does the ESV have? Test? Yeah. That word approved is the same word at the end of verse 4 when he says, God who examines our hearts. What's the ESV say there? For examines. At, in verse 4. So, he, so they have, see ESV did a, did a good job here. It's the same word. And for whatever reason, NAS decided to put two different words for it approve and examine but it's God tests us to entrust us it is God who tests our hearts now that word test is the Greek word dokumazo which means that you it's the word that you would use to refine metals why did you take if you found a chunk of, of precious metal in the ground why do you put it under the flame to reveal its weakness to get the weakness out so that you have what? An even purer form of it, right? This is what God does. This is why God tests us to not reveal just our weaknesses merely at all, to, to, to get them to the surface so he can skim them off so that what is left is that which he wants to entrust his gospel with. And the, the story goes, and the, the, the way that they used to do it is the, 
the smith, the blacksmith would bring the the metal to a boil. And all of the impurities come to the top and he would take whatever special tool it was that he could use just to skim it off the top. And he would keep doing that and keep doing that until what? Until he could see what? His own reflection in the liquid. Okay, that's what God is after. He's going to test you. He's going to test me. Not so that he can just show how dumb we are. We're going to feel weak. We're going to feel our need. But he's going to test us so that he will have a pure instrument to entrust his gospel to. We need to endure those tests. So he tests us to entrust us. That's the, you can see the second sandwich there, right? Right, so I mean, you've got the idea of testing and testing. In the middle, um, end trusting with the gospel. That's that's amazing. So, I have a great. There's a great uh, Leon Morris quote here. Since the gospel is divi- of of divine origin, no one may take it upon himself to proclaim it. God chooses His messengers. And he tests them before committing the gospel to their trust. That's huge. So here's a question for you. Do you want to be entrusted with the gospel? I hope you do. What does that mean you need to be prepared for? God is going to do some testing. And he's not testing to advertise your failure to the world but to refine you and to bring out his best in you for his gospel's sake. Um, third proof. Yes? So, you know, I hear the word anointing. Yeah. Is that, is that concept in there where when he chooses a messenger, is that an anointing? Uh, I don't know. It, it's so hard to know what... That... um. <clears throat> That's an Old Testament term that's tied with the priesthood and things like that, and and, and with the with um, being a king. And it just doesn't seem to be carried over into the New Testament as well. Um, but there are a lot of churches and Christians who will pick up that anointing language. But um, I think it's more of the laying on of hands in the New Testament that Paul talks about and that he exhorts Timothy with. Um, that the church would confer on a man through the leadership of the church and, and the spirit is to be a part of that um, in the men and in the church of, of, of a man. Now, now Paul is talking about in regards to his apostleship. Uh, the application for us is just in our own lives as a Christian. We're all entrusted with the gospel. Um, but especially those men who want to be entrusted in the sense of pastoral care, elder care, shepherding care, um, they are in are tested to be entrusted even more so. So, yeah. Uh, so you see, testing, testing to be entrusted with the gospel. There's your second sandwich out of four that we'll see. Um, third proof that God is the primary audience. God watches us. Is always present. He watches us. He's he's just always there. Watch verse five. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. God is witness. 
He says it again over in verse 10. You are witnesses and so is God. If God is the primary audience then, then fourthly, verse, tied with verse 6, we won't use authority to gain praise for ourselves. Now you're thinking about this. There's, there's your blank. We won't use authority to gain praise for ourselves. If God is watching, if this is God's gospel-centered ministry, then we won't use any authority that's been given to us. Paul won't use any authority. Pastors, elders won't use any authority. Deacons won't use any authority. Husbands won't use any authority. Fathers won't use any authority to gain praise for themselves. Why? God is watching. It's not about my authority or your authority. Verse 6, we did not seek glory from men, either from you or from others. And watch what Paul says. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Paul, he's acknowledging, look, I have authority. I've got authority on earth that's really unlike almost any other man. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I could have said, hey, you know what? Put your rods down. I'm an apostle. He could have. He didn't. So Paul is not driven by what man might think is acceptable in ministry. Paul wasn't driven by um, the desire to flex some of his own spiritual muscle. He's not driven in ministry to make a name for himself. He, He said, we wouldn't seek glory from you. It's a play on words. Glory has the idea of, of uh, weight, weightiness to it, impressiveness. Uh, so it's probably another sandwich here that we could add. But So at the beginning of the verse, we didn't seek any kind of Im- desire to have you think of us as impressive, weighty. Even though, verse 6 at the end, we might have asserted our authority. We might have, and the idea there is the word burden. We might have been able to burden you. We didn't look for the weightiness that you might think we have from you, even though we had a weightiness to maybe put on you as apostles. But Paul wouldn't use that authority to gain praise for himself. And that's proof that God is watching, that God's a part of the mystery. He's thinking about that. Now, let's walk back through these same verses. Secondly, and if God um, then is the primary influence in gospel ministry, then that means four things here. Let me give you four proofs of the fact that he's the one who's influencing gospel ministry. First, he purifies my exhortation. There's your first blank. He purifies my exhortations. That's in verse 3. Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Paul says, that's not who I am. There's, uh, I've been purified. I, error is being chased out. Um, deceit is nowhere in me. He purifies my exhortations. He If he's influencing, here's another proof. He opens my mouth to speak, verse 4. Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. That's proof that he's influencing who you are in Christ. Third proof of influence, he drops my mask in ministry. He drops my mask in ministry. Look at verse 3. Deceit. Look at verse 5, flattering speech. Verse 5, a pretext for greed, deceiving somebody, flattering somebody, 
I've got a pretext for greed here. You know what that all is? That's, that's a guy saying, I'm putting one thing on display for you, but it ain't the real thing that I want you to see that's going on behind me. I, there's something I'm hiding. So I'm going to deceive you. I'm going to flatter you to think of something else. And this is a front for my greed. That's what's behind all this. I don't want you to see. I, I'm going to gain something from this ministry that I'm having with you. So I'm going to deceive you and flatter you so that you can't see my greed. So I have a pretext for greed. And when God is influencing, Paul says, I don't have any of that. That's the influence of God on gospel ministry. It drops the mask. It drops the flattery. It drops the deception. You don't go to people just to butter them up. Um, you drop all of that. Proof that he's in influencing gospel ministry. Number four, he humbles my use of authority. Verse six. Um, we talked about it in terms of his audience. Uh, he's watching. Let's talk about it in terms of his influence. He, he just humbles my use of authority. Paul said, he admits in verse 6 that he's an apostle of Christ. He, he's an apostle of Christ with the gospel of God. That's authority. Isn't it? I mean, can you think of a higher position on earth at the time than Paul? He's a sent one of Messiah. He is speaking forth revelation that's going to be gathered together. He has that gospel that's from God and he is sent by Messiah in this world. I mean, there is no greater man on the planet than this guy. But, he says, we didn't seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles we might have asserted our authority, even though we might have. I have a statement there for you. Any authority I might possess in ministry is not about me. Say it again. Any authority I might possess in ministry is not about me. It's just not. It's just not. Any authority you might have in your home is not about you. Okay? doesn't matter what your position is. It's just not about you. Authority in ministry is always to be exercised under the approval of God, under the pleasure of God, under the witness of God. Our first resort in ministry must not be the exertion of our authority for authority's sake. And guys, this is where, as men, you're going to have to fight for this all the time uh, to combat against this. Sometimes it's, you're just going to want people to feel your weight, your authority that you have. Um, and it'll come off more that you're being more interested about you. It'll come off more that I do this at home uh, in ways I wish I never did, but it happens and I... Wish I could catch it before it happens. I need to. Um, but I can walk away from a conversation I just had with one of my daughters and, and go, that was really all about me. And then I have to go back and say, will you forgive me? Because that was really all about me. And then we can have a new conversation. Um, this is what we have to fight against as men all the time. Alex. Yeah, is this authority like uh, <clears throat> when I tell one of my kids, hey, Yeah, <clears throat> your authority, my authority, as our authority is as <clears throat> just men, 
in the church, as husbands over our wives, um, as deacons and or shepherds in the church. Um, that's all authority that's been given to us by, by God, um, and it's not about us. Uh, it's Paul, as it's applied to Paul, the apostle, he's an apostle of Christ. It came from Christ. Yeah. Do you think it could be Paul contrasting what Jesus criticized of the uh, Pharisees? Oh, yeah. That's uh, good. This, this is what their religious leaders look like with their flowing mm-hmm. robes and yeah. seated front, lack of humility. Yeah. And also what he told his disciples all the time, that you are not to be like the Gentiles. The Gentiles lord it over. They make one another feel their weight. But it's not so among you. You know, you need to be the servant. You need to be the one who's last. And here's Paul living it out. Here's Paul living it out as a servant of Christ, as a, an apostle of Christ. I, I just, I love that. And I, I need this all the time, that if this is true, that it humbles my use of authority. That's God's influence on ministry. <clears throat> Watch what happens in conflict between you and your wife. Watch what happens in conflict between you and your kids. Watch what happens between in you in conflict with you and, a, and an employee. If you've got a position and you've got somebody under you who there's conflict, watch, watch what your temptation is to make them feel. No, okay, don't, don't, don't look at it. <laughs> yes? But you know, in contrast to that, and I understand that, but sometimes holding the line or, yeah. you know, maintaining your authority can be best for the other person, and it can be selfless. Well, and, and here's, here's Paul doing exactly that. So the thing that we have to be careful of is this is not calling you to compromise before God. God did not design authority that he gave you to all of a sudden be like, well, if you're going to be humble, then it kind of works against authority. It, now you can't be a protector. Now you can't be a defender. No, he designed it exactly that my authority, which isn't about you, will actually be used in its most effectiveness when you're defending and protecting. Here's Paul writing a letter and protecting and defending and holding the line, but he's continuing to do it in a way that they don't feel it. They didn't feel it when he was there. It wasn't about Paul. It was about Christ. It was about the truth of the gospel, holding fast, watching out for error. So it's a great point to put. We have to be careful to not put a, uh, an unnatural dichotomy between these things that doesn't actually exist. Um, humble authority means that you're still the authority. And you still have responsibility. Um, you just don't want to do it in a way that it's not about you. Third, gospel-centered truth. A gospel-centered ministry is characterized by a motherly gentleness. Verse 7. And let's do this. Let's take a, a five-minute break. I'll give you guys a chance to get up and move around a little bit. All right, so let's pick back up with number three. Third gospel-centered truth for ministry. And again, what we're doing is we're just looking at the life of the Apostle Paul so that we can get a sense for... What discipline three looks like. How do we want to go about ministry with people? Well, we should pattern it after what Paul reveals about himself here. This is an amazing... Here's what the Spirit of God did in, um, in scripturating this moment. Paul is on his missionary journey and he is getting 
persecuted all over the place, makes his way to Thessalonica. He's there for a short period of time. He has to flee for his life, basically. And then he hears that after him has come some false teachers, some men assailing his character. And so he has to do what he doesn't want to do, but he has to defend his character, the kind of man that he was. That's why over and over he keeps referring to, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. Um, He has to defend that. And here's what God is doing for all of us Christians throughout all time since then. He's revealing to us in this letter the kind of minister of the gospel that we need to be. So God captures this moment through the Spirit in Paul's life and reveals to us um, the kind of character that we need to have as we are in gospel ministry. So here's the third gospel-centered truth. A gospel-centered ministry is characterized by a motherly gentleness, verse 7. Um, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. There's lots of um, questions revolving uh, in, involved with this, just this one verse. Um, one is, uh, the NAS makes it the choice to, to call it a nursing mother. Just, I forget what the ESV call, does with it. What does ESV say in verse 7? A nursing mother. Um, there's question about there, there's a few manuscripts that read babes that we were like babes in your in when we were with you just young 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 children in need of care um, but the word gentle the word gentle stands in contrast to the but in verse six um, we even though as apostles of Christ we might have been burdensome to you. We might have been able to say, here's our weight as apostles. Verse 7 says, but became gentle. So what he's saying is, even though we had weight, we weren't even going to begin to burden you. We were going to instead, in contrast, be gentle. We became that to you. We proved we became gentle. Um, I think the, the word for nursing mother there is, is, is the best uh, translation and not babes or babies. I'm not sure how that would make sense in what Paul's saying. But again, that, that's in stark contrast with men with authority. What a contrast. Paul couldn't make a bigger contrast. A nursing mother with a man of authority. Michael. Um, would like the point that in saying that be because these men that they are uh, preaching the gospel to are like brand new believers? They're like down mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they're not going to be as forceful. I mean, they're bold, but they're not going to, you know. That's a great point. And uh, he's also going to pull out the, the fatherly example coming as well. That's a, that's a good observation, Michael. Um, this is, these are babes in Christ. And what do babes in Christ need? They need an apostle who's not going to make the baby feel his weight, but make the baby feel his gentleness as a spiritual mother in a sense. So that's in contrast to the men with authority. They were they were like gentle mothers who have no um, agenda. You know, when a mother is holding her baby, she's not out to prove her authority over the baby. Have you ever seen that? I mean, why would they even do that? They don't, there's no need to. It's so unnatural to do that. And Paul's saying, I, I'm not trying to prove anything about who I am. I'm only here to care for you. 
like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Uh, this, is a, this is a very strong expression uh, that Paul is making here, expressing. Uh, he goes to extreme lengths um, to show his commitment to care for their needs, the needs of the hearers. Uh, he's going out of his way to show, look, I, I, I wasn't authoritative. I wasn't heavy with you. I wasn't a heavy-handed leader. This verse could, uh, as I said earlier, seriously test your manhood and how you do ministry um, in the gospel. D. Edmund Hebert um, has this quote. By the way, you, you buy every single commentary you can get from D. Edmund Hebert. Okay? This, he's one of those guys where uh, you, you buy your commentary based on the man. Okay? D. Edmund Hebert has commentaries in Mark. Let's see if I can remember them. First Thessalonians, First Peter, um, James. He's got a small one on First Timothy, I think, or something like that as well. Uh, he, uh, at the end of his life, lost his eyesight, and so he didn't wasn't able to write anymore. But he just has excellent commentaries. Just whatever you'll. He's very. Uh, he has lots of uh, ability to handle the original language in Greek, but you won't feel like you're reading a, an academician. Um, you'll feel like I'm, I'm, I'm listening to a very warm-hearted pastor, right? It's, it's great commentaries. He says this, the idea is the condescension of the true Christian who is willing to put himself on the level of others, which is the essence of sympathy. It is the application of the principle of the incarnation itself. That's what a nursing mother does, right? A nursing mother doesn't set a table and then yell at the baby to get on over here and sit up at the table for, for, for mealtime. Rather, what the mother does is mother makes herself accessible, accessible to the baby in the sweetest and most tender and loving and humble way possible. The mother must get on the level of the baby and not expect the baby to get on the level of the mother. Nursing is about mom being on the level of the child. And that is what Paul says gospel ministry is supposed to be like. Get on the level of those that you're caring for. He was very gentle and very meek and got down on the level of his um, stubborn disciples and, and anybody else that he came across. Yeah, again, Paul is only mirroring um, Jesus' teaching and Jesus himself here. Um, uh, another guy you might have heard of before, Calvin, said, A mother in nursing her children manifests a certain rare and wonderful affection inasmuch as she spares no labor and trouble. She shuns no anxiety. She is never wearied out by her constant diligence and attention. Gospel-centered ministry is characterized by a motherly gentleness. Um, that requires, i got a question for you on this um, that you can see there. How well are you not only um, in assessing the spiritual level of another, but then gently stepping to their level to build them up? One of the best things that you can do as you're caring for people is Spend time to understand where they're at first. Get a sense of, 
of where they're at. You want to do this in your parenting. You want to do this with your wife and your marriage. You want to do this in your gospel ministry. Take some time. Take the time that's needed and just ask lots of questions. Just get a gauge for where the person is at so that you don't make long assumptions about what they understand and what they don't understand and what they believe and what they don't believe and where they're at. And you do all of that because you're trying to be able to place a pin mark on it so that then you can take yourself and what? Adapt yourself to where they are so that you can speak at their level, so that you can care for them at their level. Um, One of the worst mistakes that we can make in in gospel ministry is just to assume that, um, well, people, I I know where you are, I I know what your situation is, and I'm just going to speak here at it, and and, um, it, it may miss the person entirely. It might not be the wrong thing to say. It, you might be spot on right, but it just didn't connect. Um, and Paul had a way. I would have loved to have seen this in, in, with my own eyes, watching him do this. Um, I need to grow in this area quite a bit. Um, so think about this. How well are you in assessing the spiritual level of another so that you can then gently step to their level to build them up? Um, and, and let me ask you this question with it. Are there any new believers or not yet believers in your life that you're trying to step into? For many of us, it might, you know, it might be your kids at this point. Um, but is there anybody else in your life that you're going after who's a brand new believer that you would have to come down to their level? And I don't mean that in a, in a bad way, but just <coughs> they're not where you are uh, yet, and hopefully they'll go much further than you. Um, but how do you get there? Um, so, yeah. So uh, if someone is a, a non-believer uh-huh. and they need to be born again, mm-hmm. does that mean that, you know, how do you come down to that level? Ah, you're the midwife. Um, no. Um, you, I mean, you come down to their level in, in applying the gospel to their condition. You're at that point, you're like a doctor. They're, they have a terminal illness. And if you don't ask all good questions and so that you can then come and, and address and, and provide the right, um, make clear to them the diagnosis and then make it clear to them the prescription, you have to be on their level to do that. And, and you need to come with, with good spiritual bedside manner to them of compassion and love for them. Uh, but you can't obviously make them born again. But what you can do is what the Spirit loves to use. You can, you can set before their hearts what the Spirit of God who causes men to be born again, you can set in front of them what the Spirit loves to use to do that. And that's the gospel. And it doesn't come apart from uh, them, them being aware of their sin, their need for a Savior, and what God did to send His Son to atone for sin at the cross and uh, making clear uh, the need for faith and repentance. I mean, you just lay out the gospel for them. Um, and sometimes you, you delay like, the full presentation of the gospel to, as part of coming on level? Yeah, I mean, it really just depends on the, the nature of the relationship. I mean, if you meet a stranger and you don't know if you're ever going to see him again, I mean, you are striving mm-hmm. to get everything out that you possibly can. Um I had an opportunity just the other night, on Thursday night, um, and with a guy um, that I, there was another guy walking up and other people coming soon, and I knew that I could see, I had a, just a moment of to be able to talk to him, and he 
was asking me about why I was, a, was I a pastor because I had grown up in a Christian home? And um, I just tried to think as fast as I could of how I could get to sin, need of a Savior, faith and repentance. And God gave me a way to get there as fast as I could. Um, so, I mean, in a situation like that, I mean, you're trying to get everything out that you can. If it's somebody you know that you have a relationship with, uh, Lord, Lord willing, you'll have many opportunities with them. And so you might. Um, um, I think what you're looking for in every conversation is to have the, the fullest opportunity you can. And by fullness, I don't mean that you're going to give the complete message every single time. Complete message. Complete message. But whatever it is you talk about, if you talk about one component of the gospel, sinfulness and rebellion, that it's complete. I... Hopefully, you know what, we were able to talk significantly about that. Or you were on your way to getting there. I mean, it just takes time. Yeah, helpful. Really cast that through is why would you be holding back any portion? If it's due to care for them, to help them understand the process, probably good. But mm-hmm. if it's because you know that's going to bring up conflict or offense yeah. or it's going to be really hard work that's going to be a rough conversation. Good. Your message changes to um, an available way to eschatology. Yeah. Yeah. And you're just um, trying to be as faithful as you can to be as clear as you can. Clarity is, is everything. And think on your own life. I mean, I don't know if think think on your own conversion if you can remember it. I mean, did it all come at once in one message? In one, I mean, it was just a dump truck right out in front of you, and you saw it all from beginning to end, top to bottom, inside to out, and you repented. Or did it take? Was God gracious to you to give it to you in pieces over time? And that's that's oftentimes the way that it comes. Um, who knows even with the Apostle Paul's life? I mean, to him it looked like there was the divine dump truck on the road to Damascus. It just dumped out the light on him, right? But who knows what had been going on that he had been thinking or been hearing in these that he was persecuting and how that pieced it together. He had enough sense at the moment to say, who are you, Lord? Um, So he might have been thinking 
you know, had some help along the way already. Mike, did you have something you want to say? You're looking for touch points of, of commonality between you, and, and uh, you probably won't get it right. You'll probably make some mistakes, and I think God's taken that into account, and he's saved you and me, and he will not be thwarted in his point. Um, one of the things that's challenging at, at some point for some, some of us is um, what I really like about this is Paul is not just hanging out with people who are just like him. Um, he's not in a theological society having theological um, you know, debates with like-minded, theologically rooted men. He's with somebody who's very different than him. And he's accommodating himself to it. And, and that's good for us to be challenged with that. Let's, let's put ourselves out among people who aren't like we are. Let's not just grow to, to in, a, in such a way to comfort ourselves with those who are like us around us. Let's be around those who are lost and um, so that we can bring the gospel to them. Number four, a gospel-centered ministry will be satisfied with nothing less than deep affection for people. I love verse eight. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our very lives our own lives, because you had become dear to us. And here's the third sandwich. Right? Um, fond affection. That's how the verse starts. How does the verse end? You became dear to us. Those are great words for us to hear just thinking about that in regards to just gospel ministry. Fond affection for people. People becoming dear to us. The greatest theological mind on the planet said that. Had a fond affection for people and people became dear to them. Now, what is in the middle of the verse? What's in the middle of that? Well pleased to impart two things. What? Gospel and self. 
Man, I, I want to I want to grow in this. Um, it's so easy just to, to think about to get excited about the gospel and just to want to impart the gospel, proclaim the gospel, make that known, make that clear, and not give any thought to whether or not do I have fond affection for people? Are people dear to me? Do they do they sense that there's a that they they have a dearness to me? And am I even imparting myself to them? Because you can't if you if if you have a fond affection for people and, and they become dear to you, you're giving yourself to them along with the gospel. This is the way gospel ministry is to be. Look, look, in Paul imparting himself to them did not save them. I just want to be clear on this, right? Paul's relationship and Paul being near to them and him giving of himself to them did not save them. What saved them? The gospel. He imparted the gospel and God saved them. But that was not without what? Paul giving his life to them also. Okay? We, we're, we try to sometimes correct bad theology in such a way that we lose some good things along the way and try to maybe, maybe we overreact and we lose some parts. Look, our lives need to be connected with people. God designed the gospel to be that way. Otherwise, we would just email everybody. We would just do tracks. We would just put stuff out there. We wouldn't even worry about putting our lives together near them. But that's not the way gospel ministry is. We put our lives next to them because of fond of affection and um, them becoming dear to us. Now, let me tie this back to some important things back in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. You could read, you might be tempted to read verses uh uh, verse 2 especially, we had, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel amid much opposition. It doesn't matter. You bring it on, and we're just going to speak the gospel, and you can't get us to shut up. Um, what, how does this help complete the picture? Verse 8. Well, Paul's actually a pretty likable guy. He, he really he loved them. They felt loved by him. They would have felt his affection. These two things are not um, incompatible. They are completely compatible. Right? They're completely compatible. To be bold for the gospel. You can't get me to shut up. And I love you. I have a fond affection for you. You are dear to me. That's what we're striving for in the gospel. So number four, a gospel-centered ministry will be satisfied with nothing less than deep affection is, isn't a polar opposite to, but it, uh, the first one. Um, I'm only concerned about you getting the gospel. Look, I hope you are. That should be our goal. I, if, if they don't get the gospel, we're sad, right? But we want them to experience the affection that the gospel has produced in us as well. Two inseparable prongs here. Gospel content and gospel care. Gospel content, gospel care. Um, how is our effectiveness, here's a question, how is our effectiveness with the gospel impacted by the level or absence of affection for others? A great deal. A great deal. The more somebody feels like you genuinely love them, the more effective the gospel will be. That doesn't mean that God can't save a stranger that 
hasn't experienced the fullness of your affection. But even a stranger should feel genuine affection from you, right? So this is, has a, a dramatic effect upon the, the, the degree that the gospel will penetrate. Um, this is tied with Second Timothy, a, a similar principle. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps then God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. His point is... The Lord's slave, the kind of slave that he is, helps contribute to the repentance. Gentleness, not being quarrelsome, being kind, being patient when wronged. Those are, are wonderful uh, softening of effects that, the, that God loves to use on the person that he's going to grant repentance to. Mike. Yes, all Mormons speak harshly. No, don't. Um, no, it, it's, it's obviously not that cut and dried. I think I think what you want to look at is get some great examples in in all of the Bible. But if we just even limit ourselves to the New Testament, watch how Jesus spoke with a Syrophoenician woman, with the disciples, with um, different people compared to how he spoke to the Pharisees. Watch how Paul spoke um, at the. Uh, before the council, when he said, I try to live my life with a good conscience up to this day, and he gets smacked across the mouth, and he says, got a whitewashed tomb, and that's the chief priest. Oops. And, you know, that whole, I mean, watch how he responds. Um, there's, how do you speak to your kids when um, they're in the comfort of your home, they're in the safety of your living room, and um, they're about to go... Um, unknowingly put the tweezers into the light socket, the wall socket. Um, they're, they're not there yet, but they're, you see what's going on and you know well enough, you, you, you approach them a certain way versus if all of a sudden you can't find your little one and you look outside and they're stepping off of the sidewalk going into the street, they're in the street, you're running after them, you're going to talk to those that same child in two different situations in different ways. You are going to raise your voice. You are going to scream. You are going to run. You're going to make the biggest noise you possibly can and because you have to protect that one. You have to defend that one. The other one maybe doesn't require the same response. Um, the, 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 the point is, and I wouldn't categorize all kinds of people, Mormons, Catholics, Muslims, whoever, in one of those Every single one is different. What if God is saving? What if he's in the process of saving a Mormon? If, if the person is, is being softened, they probably don't need a hammer shot over the head. So again, the point is, what do we have to do? Don't assume anything. Just talk. Ask lots of questions. 
get to know them, get down on their level, and ask really good questions um, to care for them. All right, number five. Is that the one we're on? Yeah, Yeah, number five. A gospel-centered ministry keeps the path to the gospel clear. This is what Paul did in verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. He did not want to be a burden to any of them. Why did he do that? Um, or or in, in what way did he do uh, reveal that he wasn't trying to be a burden? He worked, he labored with hardship night and day. What does that mean? This means financially. What Paul is talking about is Paul was willing to sacrifice. I... Paul had every right to expect to gain his living from the gospel, didn't he? But he said in Thessalonica, I didn't want to do that. So he labored with hardship even day and night, losing sleep probably. If he was spending his day talking to people, he then had to work at night. And so he did that because he didn't want to be a burden to anybody. He didn't want to hinder the gospel. He proclaimed the gospel through working hard. Now, um, Paul did this especially on the frontier missions, where, where he was taking the gospel out to places where it had never gone before. That it's at those places, for, that, for the most part, he didn't get a living from the gospel. He made tents. He worked with others. When he was at other places that the gospel had already been, um, at different points, depending on who it was, he received what came from them. I think an example of this is in um, Acts 18 when he's at Corinth and this is tied to the same situation. Okay, so he, he left in chapter 17, he left Thessalonica, went to Berea, then went to Athens and then eventually made his way to Corinth. In Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, verse 2, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. So he's working when he gets to Corinth. Um, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, this is when, this is when he had sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to say, find out how the Thessalonians are doing. We had to leave so quickly. When they came back, um, when he came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Two things are going on there. I think one, Paul is encouraged because the report he's heard from Timothy about those in Thessalonica is good. And so he he felt a freedom to just dive into ministry more. But I think it's also possible there that he actually started taking support from what Timothy and Sylvanus had. And he maybe didn't wasn't working uh, to make money from tents as much. But very quickly with the Corinthians, he went right back to, I'm not taking any money from you guys. Because they just had crazy ideas about, hey, no, we're paying Paul. Paul's our guy. And he's just like, I'm not even going to give you that opportunity. Um, so Paul here is trying not to be a, a burden to them. He, he's trying to keep the path clear if he took money from them, he didn't even want it to be a, a weird thought in their mind about, I'm giving you money and I'm listening to the gospel. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't, New Testament doesn't condemn that. But Paul chose to not take advantage of that right that he had, that privilege that he had, to gain a living from the gospel. You can read about his instruction in that in 1 Timothy 5, right? Don't muzzle the ox while it's threshing. Um, so, 
All right. He didn't want them to to bear any kind of hardship as he brought the gospel. Um, what does that mean? What, what application-wise, what does that mean? Is that the primary application is is for any elders who work hard at um, in their labor, especially of preaching and teaching. What does that mean for for the rest of us, though? A, a more distant application is: look, don't put an obstacle in front of the gospel. If, if, if it's within your ability to remove an obstacle and it means that you're the one who has to sacrifice to remove it, remove it. Just remove it. Don't expect them to go, well, you just need to understand that's what I'm like and that's what, that's what it's about and, and you'll just have to get around it or get over it. Not just move it out of the way. That's what Paul did. He had a right to something. He had a privilege that was his, but he even moved that out of the way so the gospel would not be burdened at all. Lastly, number six. A gospel-centered ministry's primary goal is transformation of life. And it's a kind of transformation of life that is worthy of God. And we reach our last little sandwich here. It's a different kind of one. I don't know. It doesn't even really compare to the other ones, but I'll show you. And this is actually between three verses. So we're just going to look lightly at 10, 11, and 12. You are witnesses, so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. So, who's Paul talking about? Whose life? Huh? Right there in verse 10. Whose life is he describing? You are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved. Right? Paul's transformation of life in um, 2.10. Right? Drop down to verse 12. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Whose transformation of life is he focused on there? Thessalonians, right? In 2.12. So the... Paul's very concerned about transformation of life. He's talking about his own and he's talking about theirs, right? And what is in between them? In verse 11, we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. And the implication again is with the gospel. He's exhorting with the gospel. He's encouraging. He's imploring. Um, (coughs) Exhorting. Encouraging. Imploring. And its implication is the gospel being there. And it's a fatherly sense, right? There's a fatherly notion of it. But I love this because look, the way that God has put gospel ministry together is that your holiness of life matters in the ministry. Your holiness of life, your transformation of life, your, let's use these words, verse 10, your devoutness, your uprightness, your blamelessness matters. And what are you after in your gospel ministry to other people? You are after their transformation of life. Verse 12, You want them to live, to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls them, right? Transformation of life. What does it take from a transformed person who's after transformation of life in another? 
Exhortation, encouragement, imploring. He gives you a list. It's hard work. You keep imploring. You keep exhorting. You keep encouraging. You keep challenging. You keep challenging. You keep calling them. And you do it not as a jerk, but hopefully you do it as a father, where you're caring for them like a father cares for a child. You're after transformation of life. Okay? These would be the kinds of things that it would be a great, um, these would be great things to be looking for in your elders, in a church. You want to be an elder? This would be the kind of, God, make me into this gospel servant, this gospel slave. Um, you're evaluating the church you want to be a part of someday. This would be a great way to talk to them about um, what gospel ministry is like. This would be a great thing to come talk to your own elders about, find out how your own elders are or are not this yet, or in the process of becoming this. Um, gospel-centered truths, six of them. Um, let's finish up with the conclusion. You've got two blanks left to fill, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap things up here. This is just the bigger picture, and I, and I love this about um, 1 Thessalonians here, especially chapters 1 and 2. There's an inseparable, unbeatable combination in gospel-centered ministry. One is proclamation. Proclamation. And there's been heavy attention on this throughout it, uh, chapters 1 and 2, and I, I, I have it listed there for you. Look in chapter 1, verse 5. He says the gospel um, didn't come in word only, but his point is the gospel did come in words, right? It did come. It just didn't come in words only. Verse 6, you received the word. Verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Chapter 2, verse 2, we speak the gospel to you. Verse 4, we're entrusted with the gospel, so we speak that gospel we never came with flattering speech. He's, he's talking about the negatively what he didn't speak about. Um, verse 8, we did not impart um, not only the gospel to you, but also our very lives. Verse 9, we proclaim the gospel of God. So, I mean, he's making the point over and over and over and over, we were proclaiming the gospel, right? But that is not on its own in First Thessalonians 1 and 2. Something else goes with it that is inseparable from it. Number two, incarnation or demonstration. You can either one of those two words. You have the proclamation of the gospel, and then you have the demonstration of the gospel through Paul in his life. You have the proclamation of the gospel, and then you have the incarnation of the gospel. What does incarnation mean? It takes on flesh in Paul. The gospel takes on flesh in Paul. And this is everywhere all throughout this. And it's measurable. Paul is counting on the fact that they saw this. They knew what kind of, of a man he was. Verse 5 of chapter 1. You know. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you. You also became imitators of us. Look, the only way they could imitate him is if he had incarnated something of the gospel to them. You became an example to all the believers. What kind of reception we had with you. This is measurable about him. Our coming to you, our entrance, our welcome, our reception. In chapter 2, verse 1. As you know, verse 2. As you know, verse 5. We were gentle among you. We imparted to you our own lives. You can recall, brethren, verse 9. You are witnesses of how we behave towards you, verse 10. As you know, and each one of you. Um, Paul puts a heavy emphasis on... We proclaim the gospel, we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim the gospel, but we were a certain kind of man among you. And um, I think all of us probably are geared towards one or the other more so than the other. 
Um, and the point would be for you to know yourself well enough to know which one you are so that you can then counterbalance your weaknesses. A question there for you. How would you rate your own life on this combination? Where are you strong? Are you one of those types that, man, you, you just love to proclaim? You love to make truth known. And that's great. Don't back off. The point here is not to back off on either one of these. The point is to bring up the one that's weaker to where you're, the other one is strong. Where are you weak? Why have you become weak? Let, let, me, let me give you the, the example on the side probably where I am. I am probably more on the... I, I love to proclaim. I love to preach. I love to lay out the truth. It's in my home that way. I got on a little sermon rant last night in the kitchen with my kids that they all, after a while, they just kind of look at each other like, what we do? Um, <laughs> at that point, I know I've lost them, but... Um, uh, anyway, where am I weak? I'm weak on the side of uh, a fond affection, a deep, uh, that they become dear, that I, I, I make myself accessible to the level. Um, I, want, I need to grow. Why am I weak there? Because my tendency for myself is to overfocus myself on that which I already like. And I don't spend as much time as I need to on the part where I'm weak. Now, there are some of you here, you're just the opposite. You, you love people and you love on people in the biggest, best way possible. Why are you weak on the proclamation side? You need to know why you are. Not so that you can push down, say, I'm going to stop caring for people like I have been because I need a balance. No, not that way. Leave that where it's at. And... What do you need to do to make yourself more balanced so that you have the completeness um, that the gospel ministry requires? And what has to happen for you to get stronger in that area? It'd be great for you to take some time. I think all of these questions, I think your homework is um, for next time is on all these questions. Um, and I'm especially interested. Is that right? I just need to double check. Yes. The last question, I, I would love to have your input. I think the elders would love to have your input. How would you rate our church on this combination? It's a good thing for us to know just what our, what our church is like. Um, churches are also known, churches take on personalities, don't they? And they reflect primarily um, the personalities of, of two different layers or entities within the body, the layer of the leadership and the, the, the layer of the, of, of, of the body as a whole. Um, but the leadership sets the tone for that. Is Grace Bible Church a proclamation-only church? Carrying a hammer? Are, are we known more, more for that? Is there a sense of gentleness? Is there a sense of of putting ourselves on the, on the, the same level of, of the lives of others that we're ministering to from top to bottom, from the elders down to the youngest in the church? I'd love to know what your thoughts are on the church and give you have you give us some feedback on that. So um, maybe we can assess why we're weak where we are weak and we can strengthen it, make it better. So all right, there you have it. There's the the study of the Apostle Paul in Discipline Three, the ministry. There's no better person to look at than the Apostle Paul um, in that. So any questions or comments? Tom, you want to add anything or Jacob, any elders? Verse 7, chapter 2, is about being gentle. I, I know 
seeing a big guy before becoming a believer, people would say, oh, you're so gentle. And I always, it's a word that I kind of struggle with. What does it mean to be gentle? And you think of gentle, and I think the context in English, you think, oh, I'll just be really small. And he's just so kind. But we're called to be gentle. The, the mark of the fruit of the Spirit in our life, one of them is that we're going to be gentle. <clears throat> in uh, Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus in verse 3, 4, 5, and 10, giving the description of what a Christian is, and in verse 5 he says that the, the meek, or in your translation might say, the gentle will inherit the earth. And, and so I've always tried because. Gentle has such a weird connotation in our language. And here's what I'm becoming convinced what the word truly means. Stubbornly trusting God. Uh, and I think it fits in this that Paul among them was stubbornly trusting God. It wasn't that he was a little melt-up, so gentle, and so kind. He was stubbornly trusting God. And, and guys, we need to be stubborn and trusting God, God as we go into our home, as we go to work, wherever we go. And it, it is truly, we know it's a fruit of the Spirit working in us. And from Matthew 5, it's truly the mark of a believer. Hmm. And I think it's just one of those words in the English language that we just don't get the full or we, yeah, or we have a, a, a such a sentimental um, overload on it from our culture um, that we miss some of the other ideas that are woven into it. Jeff, um, this is probably for a whole other time, but you know, I, I read the I've been sovereignly placed in the Mormon community. Hmm. Um, I've been there seven years. I have three Mormon partners. Hmm. Um, I've infiltrated the Mormon community. And, and so, you know, what I find myself having to be is very strategic, very hmm. prayerful. If I barged in there with the gospel, I would not be these guys' partners. But they know that my gospel is different than theirs. I've actually had one partner ask me, you know, what's, what does the atonement mean for you? And I've had another, I've had another um, manager in our firm say, you know, tell me about your God, and, and he's he's now clear that mm. his God is entirely different wow. than my God. Praise God. And so, you know, it's kind of like sometimes you hear missionaries that go 15 years before they get a convert, but mm-hmm. I know God is going to save some people because He's placed me in this environment, and they haven't yet, um, but. Just, I guess I would just say, be. I'm preaching the gospel to myself all day, every day, and so the chance is going to come along where I'm going to be able to say, hey, you know, there's a verse that says, um, you know, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What does that verse mean to you? And and I, I just need to be ready, you know, mm-hmm. when it comes, and be patient, be strategic. And other times you can blare in there with yeah. but sometimes. Frankly, I've kind of come to this conclusion I need to be patient because I could get so frustrated if I if I just barged in and said to one of my partners, hey, 
guys, you know, I need to tell you about sin and blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't be there anymore. I literally would be fired. I would not be in that community. So um, we need to be strategic, and God will use us. And, yeah. and frankly, I want to flare it to him, but I wouldn't be there anymore. Right. So yeah, that's it's good. complicated at times. It is, and, and every every one of us has to weigh where God has us, what the environment is. Um, a, a, a clear testimony of the gospel within you is that in your work environment, you work with a quality of work that stands out apart from anybody else who does your job. Not because you're smarter, but because you're, you, you want to glorify God. You can do your job in a way that brings glory to God that they can't. That is a huge statement to make. And if, and if um, you know, and when you get an opportunity to open your mouth in that situation, please open your mouth and speak boldly and make no apology for what you say. And count on the fact that um, as you're working hard and you're working to bring glory to God in your work is not going to um, hurt the place you work unless they're doing something illegal. And then it's going to hurt them because you won't be you won't participate in what's illegal. But if they're legal in what they're doing, you're only going to be a blessing to them, and they're not going to get rid of you, unless he just hates Christians and doesn't want to have Christians. But open your mouth when you get the opportunity, but work hard. And everybody, you know, every relationship's different. There's one day you have it, and you're you're stern, and you're bold, and there's another time. The next time you get together, you're gentle and you're comforting. You have to know your audience. You have to know the one that you're dealing with. Um, so, just be, yeah, that's a good that's a good encouragement to us to be patient. See yourself, you know, committed to people for the long haul as long as you can, and um, open your mouth when you can. So, I'll tell you what we'll do, guys. Um, we're down to less than fifteen. Why don't you hang on to your um, homework? And we'll just get together next time. If you want to, um, if you want to talk about anything from your homework, uh, you can find your small group leader and go talk to them about that now. Or you can talk with Tom or me or Jacob or any of the elders. Um, I think we're the only ones here. Oh, Steve's here. Sorry, Steve, I didn't to leave you out. Um, you can come talk to any of us if you want, but um, uh, we'll call it quits for today. Okay? And we're back in two weeks on the 28th. Two weeks from today. And also think about the Shepherds Conference. Go online and get yourself registered. If you got any questions, you can ask Cass. She knows everything.